0: Good morning. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church this morning. We are looking at Daniel and the resurrection. Last week we began to look at chapter 12 and the time of the resurrection. And You know, I think most Christians look for a day that the resurrection will happen in the future. Sometime in the far future. Basically, at the end of time, a resurrection is going to take place. Now, I told you last week, then, when I questioned R.C. Sproul Sr., And asked him, what keeps you from being a full preterist? That his response was, the resurrection. And to which I said, what about Daniel 12? Because as I look at Daniel 12 and the resurrection, I don't know how in the world you can remove it from the first century. And so we're going to continue looking at that this morning. And I want you to see that Daniel 12 puts the resurrection clearly at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. So let's continue looking at 12 and see what we can uh, learn about the resurrection. And I'm not going to you know, spend a lot of time in each one of the verses because I wanted to finish this two-part thing today to really be a two-part. So we're going to finish it today. And we're fo- our focus is on the resurrection. Last week we looked at verse 1. It says, Now at that time Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress, which has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Now last week I suggested, and I guess it was kind of a new suggestion for a lot of people, the fact that uh, <clears throat> the pre-incarnate Christ was Michael. That Yeshua was Michael. This was a name used of Michael before his incarnation. And hopefully I supported that with Scripture. I, we could have spent more time, but I hopefully I gave you enough Scripture to, uh, <clears throat> to see where I was coming from with that. Well, this past week on, uh, on our YouTube channel, uh, on this video, Haviv asked this question. He says, Can I ask you what, your, what is your view on Revelation 12.7 in light of this? It says, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon... The dragon and his angels wage war. Now, Haviv asked, who's the dragon and who is Michael? Is it Jesus? Well, in Revelation 12, 7, we see that the angels in heaven are Michael's angels. And that Michael leads his angels in battle against the dragon, which is a reference to Satan. So I think we can see that Michael is indeed the captain of the angels. He is their leader. Now, if we compare Joshua 5 and Revelation 12, we see that Joshua saw man who identified himself as the captain of the host of the Lord. That man was also identified as being the Lord in chapter 6. Archangel, we said that, you know, we looked at Jude, and we saw that, you know, Michael is called the archangel. And by the way, you've got to understand this. There's only one archangel mentioned in Scripture. It's only mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4, and in Jude 1, and that is... This archangel is Michael. He is it. An archangel means chief of the angels. He's the chief of the angels. He's their commander. The commander of the Lord's army in heaven, God, which is God's angels. And I think this is, this is clearly Michael the archangel. He's the captain of the host of the Lord. Who is the Lord? This is, uh, this is Yeshua. Now, in Revelation 19, we see a very interesting change in the leader of the armies of heaven. Alright, we see in Revelation 12.7 here that Michael and his angels wage war, and Michael's leading this host of angels. But look at, uh, <clears throat> let's look at Revelation 19.11-14. As I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat it upon is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now, who is the Word of God? Well, that's clearly Yeshua. I mean, John makes that very clear. In John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God and the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then down to verse fourteen, he said, "The word became flesh, and tabernacle among us." That is Yeshua. So Yeshua is the word; he is the word of God. And in Revelation nineteen, we see that the armies which are in heaven follow him. So Yeshua is leading the armies in heaven. In Revelation twelve, we saw that Michael was leading the armies of the heaven. So we see that the word of God is Yeshua. Michael is Yeshua. He is the pre-incarnate Christ. So if that's a new idea to you, I just ask you to look, look at scripture, study it out a little bit. I found out this week that there was a couple other commentators who actually, you know, held that view also. So it's good to know that, you know, there are some other people who see that. But I mean, it just, it seems clear to me, but that doesn't mean it's right because some things are clear to me that, that aren't right. So I'd ask you to just, uh, look into that a little bit more. We saw last week that Daniel is talking about a time of great tribulation in verse 1. He says there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And we saw that this is the same thing that Yeshua talked about in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, and Yeshua clearly said that this time of tribulation would happen to the generation that he was speaking to. The first century generation so if Yeshua is talking about the same tribulation that Daniel is and he says it's going to happen in the first century then that's when it's going to happen we also saw that during this great tribulation those whose names are written in the book of life will be rescued and we talked about this book of life last week now everyone who is found written in the book is going to be rescued now during the question and answer time Robert from Utah asked a question about Revelation 22 19 which I totally messed up, all right? What I should have done is taken my Bible and looked at the question, because he asked about this passage in Revelation, and I just, you know, I said, I basically already answered that question. Well, I didn't answer that question, and so I apologize. You know, I don't want to do anything that's going to hinder people from asking questions, because if you've got a question, I want to answer it. And I, I messed that up last week. I apologize, Robert. Your question is important. And last week I said this. There is no explicit statement in the Scripture that anybody will have his name blotted out of the book of life. Alright, then Robert asked this question with Revelation twenty-two nineteen: If anyone takes away from the words of the book of prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in the book. Now that sure seems to contradict what I said. So you're going to go with me or are you going to go with the Bible? <laughs> it's a tough choice, right? <laughs> Hopefully, there's no choice at all. But here's the problem here. All right? This is the, you notice that this is not the New American. All right? Normally, I quote New American. This is the New King James because the King James version has Book of Life. But textual critics say Book is an error here. And really, it should be Tree of Life in this text. So in my Bible, it doesn't even have Book of Life, it has Tree of Life. And uh, that's how the New American Standard translates it. Uh, so this verse is not teaching that you're always going to take someone's name out of the book of life. I think the Scriptures teach the opposite of that. Believers, our salvation is secure. I think if we're familiar with the text from beginning to end, we have a secure salvation. Let me show you my favorite verse. Romans 5.19. I know we looked at this in Romans, but you probably forgot. It was a while ago, all right? For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. you got to get the first half to get it right. Alright? You are not a sinner because you were born this innocent, perfect little child, and then you messed up. And now you're a sinner. You're a sinner because you were born that way. Through one man's disobedience, that's Adam. Through Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners. We're made sinners through Adam. He was the federal representative of the human race. When he sinned, we sinned with him. Now if you get that, let's look at the second half. Even so, here's the other side of the equation. This is the beautiful side of it. Through the obedience of the One, the many will be made righteous. It is through the obedience of Yeshua that you are righteous. The only way you are righteous... Just like I disobeyed in Adam and was condemned, I have obeyed perfectly in Yeshua. People say, well, if you don't live a holy life, you're not going to make it. I do live a holy life in Yeshua. I am perfectly righteous in Yeshua. And it's my standing in Yeshua that matters. People say, well, shouldn't we live a holy life? Absolutely we should, but it has nothing to do with your eternal salvation. You should live a holy life out of gratitude for all that the Lord has done for you, you should live a life of holiness to be a testimony to your God who is a holy God. But if your salvation was dependent on how you live, we are all in trouble, people. Every one of us are in trouble. And we would, you know, we would be in fear every moment, you know. I'm righteous in Christ. That's my position. I'm eternally secure because I am in Him. So there's no, no chance of us losing that, people. Alright? Unless he loses it, we're not going to lose it. And there's no chance of him losing it. Alright, let's move on to Daniel. 12.2 Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now this is clearly talking about the resurrection. And in the context, it happens after the time of the great tribulation. And after it happens... There's going to be believers leading many to righteousness. Look at Daniel 12.3. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Paul uses this text and he quotes from it in Philippians. Talking about those saints shining and being light. The light of the kingdom is going out and many are coming to righteousness. Now if the resurrection happened at the end of time, who are these people leading many to righteousness after time is over. It just doesn't make sense. So Daniel 12 talks about the time of a great tribulation for Daniel's people. He talks about the resurrection and then about people coming, bringing many to righteousness. Now I want you to notice what Yeshua says about the same same exact things in Matthew 13. He says, so just as the tares are gathered, he's explaining the parable here, Just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be, when? At the end of the age. Now, so the time that Yeshua is talking about here is at the end of the age. This is the same time that Daniel is talking about. The same age and the same end that Daniel talks about. Look at Daniel 12, 13. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion. When's He going to rise At the end of the age. People, there's only two ages talked about in the Bible. This age, not this age, but this age of the Bible, when the Bible's written, this age, which was the old covenant age and the age that was to come, which is the new covenant age. Because in the old covenant, God made a promise to bring a new covenant. And so if a new covenant was coming, then the old covenant would have to come to an end. So that old covenant is the this age that was coming to an end. The new covenant has no last days. No end time. So the end of the age must refer to the end of the old covenant. Listen, God has never made a promise of a newer covenant. Alright, we got the new covenant. There's no newer covenant. The new covenant is an everlasting covenant, so there are no last days. All right, back to Matthew 13. So we know what He's talking about here, what Jesus is talking about. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. And will cast them into the furnace of fire. By the way, this is a reverse rapture, okay? The bad people get taken. All right? He's going to gather them out, those who commit lawlessness. And will cast them into a furnace of fire in the place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 43 says, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Yeshua tells us that at the end of the age, the lawless are going to be gathered up, cast into the furnace of fire, it's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a time of great tribulation, the same time that Daniel talks about. And then he says this, Then the righteous shall shine forth as the sun. And he is quoting here Daniel 12.3. So the same stuff, the great tribulation, the resurrection, the righteous shining forth as the sun, it all happens at the end of the Jewish age. Yeshua said it happens at the end, Daniel 12 said it happens at the end, they're talking about the same end, there's only one end, they're connected. So both Daniel 12 and Matthew 13 are speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and the resurrection was to happen at that time. All right, back to Daniel 12.4. We're moving on now. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. So Daniel's told to seal up the book until when? The end of time. Hmm. Does that sound good? Does something, something, something bother you about that? Okay, listen. This is a bad translation. Alright? And I don't understand why... New American Standard, everywhere else gets it right. All of a sudden here, decide to put the end of time. He's talking about the end of the age in this passage. He talks about the end many times and here's the end of time. Young's literal translation states this, the time of the end. And so does the King James Version and so does the nearly inspired version. Even the NIV got this right, people. Okay? Now listen. We know that this should be translated not be translated end of time if we just compare the rest of Daniel. So we're going to jump ahead to verse 7 and this is going to be a little lengthy explanation but remember the whole purpose of all of this is to show you that it's not talking about the end of time. So let's jump to 7. I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river and he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time times and a half time As soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. Now notice the end of this verse. As soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events, all what events? Well, what he's been talking about in Daniel 12, which would be the great tribulation in verse 1, the resurrection in verse 2, many being turned to righteousness in verse 3, and the shattering of the holy people. So all these events will be completed... When the holy people are shattered, when their power is shattered. So when does it happen? Is it at the end of time? As the New American Standard says in verse 4. Well, first of all, who are the holy people? They're Israelites, right? Yes, absolutely, they're Jews. So in the context of Daniel's people are the Jews. So when was the Jews' power completely shattered? It was in AD 70. Alright, with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Now to understand that better, let's go back to Daniel 9. And look at these 70 weeks for a moment. And remember, I'm trying to show you the end of time here. It's not end of time, it's time of the end. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. We know who that is, that's the Jewish people. And your holy city. Alright, so he's talking about the, this is the context of the 70 weeks. It's the Jewish people, it's the holy city. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. Alright? So, 70 weeks here. This is the Jewish people, this is Jerusalem. As I said last week, I don't see these 70 weeks as a literal block of time. Many people try to take this, make it literal, they count the 490 years and they say, put it here, put it there. No matter what system you look at, it doesn't fit. Okay, If you start at the beginning and end at the end, it doesn't fit. It doesn't make 490 years. So let me tell you why I don't think it's a a literal block. When Daniel received this prophecy of the 70 weeks, the children of Israel were in captivity in Babylon when they got it. Now, after the kingdom of Babylon fell in 538 B.C., the Persian king Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. This was the start. Of the 70 weeks. Let's jump back to Ezra for a minute. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, let me stop here and ask you a question. Could Cyrus not have issued the proclamation to rebuild Jerusalem? No? Could the word of the Lord gone unfulfilled? No. Well, then, here's another question. If those two questions are no, did Cyrus have a free will? Oh, y'all are just getting too difficult here, okay? No free will? Yeah, the Bible doesn't teach that nonsense, people, okay? That's TV, and the Arminians have picked up on it, but it's not in the Bible, okay? God made a decree, Cyrus is going to fulfill it. Cyrus couldn't have said, I'm not going to make this decree no matter what. He's going to make the decree, all right? He did. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, he is fulfilling the prophecy, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, I'm not sure what that means, to stir up the spirit, but he he did what the Lord wanted him to do, okay? So that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Wow, he, he understood some things, didn't he? And he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So after this decree was issued, thousands of Israelites, they're in captivity to Babylon. Immediately they packed their bags and they started going back to Jerusalem. We're going home. The captivity's over. So the 70 weeks begin at 538 B.C. with the issuing of this decree to rebuild the temple in the city. And the 70 week, now we know that for sure, alright, there's not really any question about that. We also know when they ended. They end with the destruction of Jerusalem when the power of the holy people is shattered. We know that for sure. So that's 70 A.D., right? Gabriel's prophecy begins with the statement in verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. So that's when it starts. And then we see that the city and the sanctuary were to be destroyed. And your people... And the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. All right? This happened, we know, in 8070. So, from 538 B.C. to 8070 is how many years? Is it 490? 608. All right? Not 490. So it doesn't fit. All right? I mean, so that's why I'm saying this is not a literal period. It was, now get this though, because the typology I think is kind of important here. The issue was decreed at the fall of Babylon, okay? The issue ended, the decree ended, the 70 weeks end, at the fall of another Babylon, which is Jerusalem, right? All right, so from Babylon to Babylon is what this decree is. The 70 weeks, I think, are very much like Yeshua's statement to Peter. Let's look at that in Matthew 18, 21. Then came Peter and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Give me a number and a low one. Okay? (laughs) I don't want to have to forgive him too many times. And Peter says, watch this, up to seven times? Well, he's being magnanimous. Boy, I'm really stretching it. Lord, I'll forgive him seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. That's a lot of forgiving. But if you got a notebook, you just keep track, okay? What happens when you get to 491? That's it. No more forgiveness. Is that what the Lord's teaching here? No, His answer is not to be taken literally. Yeshua confronts Peter with the truth that the Spirit of forgiveness doesn't know boundaries. He is saying, don't keep track. So Yeshua's 70 times 7 is not to be taken literally, and neither is Daniel's 70 weeks, which is... 70 times 7 also. They're both 490. Neither one of them are to be taken literally. The 70 weeks could not have been a literal chronology because they were to consummate in the destruction of the temple with the parousia and the resurrection. If they were literal, the people could have taken the number and they could have calculated the exact time of the parousia. They could have counted 490 years from Cyrus' decree to rebuild the temple in the city and they would have known exactly when Yeshua returned. But Yeshua said this, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day, an hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Now many take, they use verse 36 to try to prove that we have no knowledge of the time of a future to us second coming of Christ. But that day here, Refers to the passing away of heaven and earth, which was the destruction of Jerusalem and the Old Covenant. Yeshua already told them in verse 34 that it would happen in their generation, which was 40 years. All right? But they did not know the day or the hour it was to happen. They knew it was a 40 year period. They knew it was this generation. When a woman gets pregnant, we know that in about 40 years she's going to have a baby. 40 weeks, I'm sorry, 40 years, yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for that correction. Yes, that's what I meant. Forty weeks. (laughs) Forty years would be a rough gestation period, okay? So we know it's going to be in about 40 weeks. Now, we don't know the day or the hour. And doctors try to guess, don't they? Well, you're going to have the baby on this date. It never happens on that date. Okay, you don't know exactly the day or the hour. And that's the point of what Jesus is saying here. As a matter of fact, it's quite interesting that prior to the consummation of the kingdom, it's often referred to as the birth pains of the kingdom. Because, you know, it's like a pregnancy giving this birth here, and you don't know exactly when it's going to happen. Well, since no man knew the day or the hour, the 70 weeks have to be taken symbolically. Or you just count them, and then we know exactly when you're sitting around waiting, you should be here any minute now, you know, and you knew exact time. But it's a symbolic period. I think that's very clear. Again, you know, study this out, look it up, look at some of these guys who put the exact dates and when they, you know, I know when it had to start, I know when it has to end, okay, that's, all the stuff in the middle is real foggy, all right, but I know those things and that to me is is really all I really need to know, that's, that's all that matters, all right, in uh, 926, he says, then after 62 weeks, now, the seven weeks are first, there's a period of seven weeks, then we have 62, so how many is that? 69. All right, after the 62 weeks, that'd be what week? That's the 70th week. Okay, we're in the 70th week. The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. So here we see that in the 70th week, which is the final week for the Jewish people, God says, you Jewish people, you got 70 weeks and that's it, then you're done. That the people of the prince, which I believe, now some people believe this is the Roman emperor, I don't think so. I think the people of the prince are the Jewish people. And if you read Josephus, you find out they're responsible for the destruction of that city. Okay, They're the ones, I mean, they destroyed it from within. When the Romans got in, the Romans were literally repulsed at what they found on the inside when they got in. I mean, they just thought, this is incredible. the, The carnage that went on inside while the Romans were sitting outside waiting for this thing to come down, was incredible. So I think the people, and, and I, if you don't think that, I don't care. That's okay. You can, think, you can have it be whoever you want it to be. All right? But that's how I see it. They'll destroy the city and the sanctuary. The destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple would be that shattering of the power of the holy people. And we know this happened in 8070. In August, September 8070. We know that. All right? The old covenant system was then swept away. God just, I'm done with it. He finished that. He did away with it. No more genealogy. No more priesthood. No more sacrifices. It's over, people. All done. Now since... Okay, remember what I started all this for, (laughs) back at verse 4, the end of time thing. Since this does not happen at the end of time, because we know it already happened, But at the end of the little covenant age, we know that the New American Standard translation, end of time in Daniel 12.4, is wrong. Can't be right. He's not talking about an end of time. Let me just say here that the Bible does not speak about the end of time. doesn't talk about it. If you find that in the Bible, it's a bad translation. The expression, the end time, or the time of the end is found in Scripture, but nowhere in the Bible other than the New American Standard, Daniel 12, 4, which is a bad translation, does the Bible talk about the end of time. The end time or time of the end speaks of the end of an age, but the end of an age is not an end of time. Scripture doesn't indicate that I can find that God has any plan to destroy this world that He created for us to enjoy. Now let's go back to Daniel 4, where Daniel is told, conceal these words and seal up the book until the time of the end. So these things were not going to be understood until it got to be the time of the end. When the end times arrive, Yeshua, referring to Daniel's words, said this, "...but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains." So Mark adds here, let the reader understand. This is designed to draw attention to the, the reader of Daniel's passage here and get its true meaning. In other words, when you see Jerusalem... Surrounded by the armies, that's the sign of the destruction of Jerusalem, the sign of the age coming to an end. Look at Daniel twelve nine again. He says, "Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time." Now there, it's not the time of the you know, it's not the end of time, but the end time. Again, Daniel is told to take the words and seal them up. They're going to be sealed. They're going to be concealed until the last days. We're also told here in Daniel 4 that one of the things that's going to happen is knowledge will increase. Near the end of time, when these days are coming to an end, knowledge will increase. Now, how many of you have heard this verse used and say, This is our day? Because look at science and technology. I mean, all the stuff we have, this is must be talking about today. How many heard that? You've heard that? Man, I used to hear that all the time. Yeah. And it makes sense. You know, if you don't know any better, you're like, well, this day does have more knowledge than any. I mean, we're, you know, we're doing crazy stuff, you know. All kinds of technology. You think in Daniel 12, he was talking about technology or science? I don't think so either. Remember, he's talking about the end of the Jewish age. When the Bible talks about knowledge, it's referring particularly to the knowledge of Yahweh. Okay? Prior to Pentecost, and the coming of the New Covenant, the knowledge of Yahweh was limited to who? Israel. All right? Israel alone had the knowledge of God. Look at Romans 9 4. Who are Israelites to whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, the temple service, the prophets? Everything belonged to them. They had the knowledge of God. Only Israel had it. But after Pentecost, what happened to that knowledge? It began to go forth to the nations. Right? That's the knowledge that Daniel's talking about. It's the knowledge of the Gospel. The knowledge of God in Christ. Isaiah spoke of this in Isaiah 2. He says, "...the word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, now will come about that in the last days..." Okay, you get that same concept, talking about this only one set of last days. It's the last days of Israel. "...the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains..." and will be raised above the hills. Now, this is not literal language here. Okay? This happens in the last days, the same last days of Daniel's. He says that all the nations will stream into it. I want you to notice here, it's the nations, the Gentiles, are streaming into the mountain of the Lord. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house, to the God of Jacob. Why? That He may teach us. Oh, so we're going to get some knowledge when we go there? Yeah, He's going to teach us concerning His ways and that we may walk in His paths for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Here's the knowledge of God increasing as it goes forth after Pentecost. Teaching us. That's knowledge increasing. The Gentiles are taught the ways of Yahweh. You know, Paul was used of Yahweh in the last days to help increase this knowledge. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, six: For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So here, Paul lived in the last days and he helped to promote this knowledge. He helped it to increase. This is what Daniel's talking about. In the last day, knowledge would increase the knowledge of the Gospel of our Lord Yeshua HaMashiach. That's the knowledge that's increasing. It's not talking about our day and technology. Everything Daniel's talking about is during the last days of the Old Covenant. Alright, let's move on to verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing... One on the bank of the river, and the other on the bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? That's a good question, right? When, when is all this stuff going to happen? And the question seems to be asked here for the sake of Daniel. The end of these things is the end that has been talked about since Daniel 11.40, to up into chapter 12. All this is going to happen in that same end, the great tribulation, the salvation of the elect, the resurrection, all of it. And the answer to the question is found in the next verse. So the question is, when's this going to happen? I heard a man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, and he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half time. And as soon as they are finished shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be accomplished. So all these events, again, includes everything in Daniel 2, the resurrection, all that, the shattering, the power of the Holy People, that's the Jews. When they're completely shattered, that's the end. So he says, when's it going to happen? Here's the time frame. This is it. So the resurrection was to happen at the end of the Jewish age, the Old Covenant. We know this was A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed. Verse 80 says, Ask for me... I heard, but could not understand. So I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. That is, till the time comes, or the time draws near, that they're going to be accomplished. Until then, they're not going to be clearly understood. Well, then in the book of Revelation, we read this, and he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. The time is near. See, what was sealed in Daniel is revealed in Revelation because it's near now. It's the end time when Revelation is written, so now it's going to be revealed exactly what he's talking about. Alright, back to Daniel. Daniel 10. He says, Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. And none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. So the unbelievers are not going to get this. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Alright? He says that from the time of the abomination of desolation, from the time that's set up, there's going to be 1,290... How long is that? Three and a half, Three and a half years. That's time, times, and half a time. Alright? So we, see, we keep seeing this, you know, over and over. You know, just a coincidence here, but that is exactly how long the war against Jerusalem lasted. Three and a half years. What a coincidence. Daniel talked about this, you know... Time, times, and a half of times. And this 1,290 days would be the time when the people's power is going to be shattered. And it just so happens the war against Jerusalem lasted that long. Cool coincidence. <clears throat> Yeshua referred to this you know, same time here, this abomination of desolation. You know, many people read this and they say, well, Daniel's talking about Antiochus Epiphany. I don't believe so because Jesus says no. Alright? Look what He says in, in Matthew 24, 15. therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which one? The one spoken about through Daniel. Oh, okay, that one Daniel 12 was talking about? Standing in the holy place, he says, let the reader understand. Now, I want you to understand. Now you're going to understand what Daniel Daniel's talking about. It was sealed then, now it's coming open. Commenting on this verse, John Walvard writes, y'all know who John Walford is, right? Mr. Dispensationalism. He writes, such a temple will be rebuilt. And these prophecies... Literally fulfilled. In other words, the destruction of Jerusalem in 87 wasn't really literal. That was kind of a figurative thing, I guess. Not to those people, but, you know, literally fulfilled. If upon this revival of their sacrificial system, so he believes the whole sacrificial system put back into operation again. Wow, I got a real hard time with that. Okay? I mean, you got the type, then you get the anti-type, now we're going back to type. Why do we need those pictures again when Jesus came and died for us? Alright? He says, Upon the revival of their sacrificial system, such a future temple is suddenly desecrated, it would constitute a sign to the nation of Israel of the coming time of great trouble just preceded by the second coming. Oh man, come on, Walbert. Now, is that what Yeshua is talking about in our text? No! No! He's talking about something that would happen in his generation, not thousands of years off into the future. Now, what is this abomination of desolation? Well, many commentaries find an allusion to the standards of the Roman legions in the expression, abomination of desolation. The eagles were objects of worship to the soldiers. And we know from Josephus that the attempt of a Roman general, Vitellius. In the reign of Tiberius to march his troops through Judea was resisted by the Jewish authorities on the ground that it would be idolatrous to take these images you know, into their city. I think Luke really clears this up for us in Luke 21:20. 20, he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. This desolation, this abomination of desolation. Now, by reading the surrounding verses, you can't deny that Luke's is a parallel account to Matthew's, all of it discourse. And parallel accounts can not have different meanings. And by combining Luke's statement with the secular history, it's very clear that Cestius Gallus and his Roman army were the abomination of desolation. And this was fulfilled in AD 66 when the Romans surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And he says, when you see this abomination of desolation that Daniel talked about, so again, he's connecting Daniel to AD 70. Chrysostom wrote, For this it seems to me that the abomination of desolation means the army by which the holy city of Jerusalem was made desolate. Okay? Makes sense? Let's go on to verse 13. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Now, the statements of verse 1, verse 7, verse 11, verse 12, tie the resurrection to a time immediately following the destruction of the temple. And Daniel was to arise at the end of this age, when the power of the holy people were shattered. How can you take the resurrection and separate it out of this text from the destruction of Jerusalem? How can you do it? I don't understand. And that's why I asked Sproul, I said, what do you do with Daniel 12? What is Daniel 12 talking about? And most, even the dispensationalists, you know, or at least the partial preterists will connect Daniel 12 with the destruction of the temple. Well, you've got the resurrection going on in there. This happens at that time. Now, what Daniel had written was well ingrained into the thinking of the Jewish people, Okay because they're looking for the 70th week, they're trying to figure out when is our Messiah coming, and they understand this stuff. And we see from Yeshua's discussion with Martha that she had no doubt as to when the resurrection would be. Jesus said to her, your brother will arise again, and Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She knew that. The last day of what? Human history? No, the last day of the planet? No, that's not what she's talking about. She's referring to the last day of the Jewish age. So Yeshua taught that the resurrection would happen soon. Not thousands of years later. Look what He says in John 5.25 Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So He's talking about the resurrection. And He said that the resurrection is going to be on that last day in John 6. He says, this is the will of Him who sent Me that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up at the last day. When's the last day? Well, to the Jews, time again is divided into two great periods. Mosaic Age, the Messianic Age. The Messianic Age was viewed as one that would bring it. The the age of the Messiah was viewed as one that would bring in a new world. The period of Messiah was therefore correctly characterized by the synagogue as the world to come. And all through the New Testament, we only see two ages: this age and the age to come. So that's all there is. So this, the one coming to an end, is the old covenant age. Look what Peter says in First Peter one twenty: For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So he clearly tells us that Yeshua came during the last days of the age that was the old covenant, the Jewish age. And that age came to an end with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. This is what Daniel's talking about. How you can separate that, I don't know. And if you can't separate it, then guess what happens when the age ends? The temple's destroyed, and the disciples knew that. And when Jesus was talking about the temple in Matthew 24, they said, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And the end of the age. They connected them all. Your coming, the end of the age, the destruction of the temple. They knew they were all together. And that's what Daniel's teaching. All that stuff happens together. And it happened in AD 70. And that happened. Prophecy is fulfilled. And that's what Luke said. All prophecy will be fulfilled in these days of vengeance. All of it. And so, when that city and that temple fell, it's not just a war in history that happened, it's the end of an age. The temple was destroyed, the Lord returned in judgment on His city, and the dead were raised. The big three, people. The second coming, the judgment, and the resurrection, they're all history from our perspective. And I don't know how you can deal with Daniel 12 in any other way. Now, again, we jumped in at the end of the book, and we just did chapter 12, so maybe someday we'll get back and we'll start at verse 1 and work our way through. It's always the best way to study anything, start from the beginning, but you know, I only had two weeks, so I couldn't possibly start from the beginning. But I, I, I think we clearly see here the connection. There's no way to separate that. There's no way to move that, you know, oh yes, you know, like a lot of partial prayers say, yeah, the Lord returned in 87, He destroyed the temple, the resurrection is off in the future. How do you do that? How do you cut it out of that passage and move it somewhere else? It doesn't fit. It happened. It happened at the end of the Old Covenant, and I think Daniel 12 makes that really clear. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning, Lord, for the opportunity to look at Your Word, to study it. Lord, sometimes these things seem so clear to us, but I know we don't always see the right way. I pray You'd grant us wisdom, Lord, that we'd approach Your Word as the truth that it is. We'd approach it humbly, reverently, only desiring to know what the truth is. We thank You, Lord, for the clarity of this text. In the name of Yeshua, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, any questions or comments on what we covered today? Jeff? Right, yeah. So, they're, so they're, are they saying there's two resurrections? All right, and then you got two resurrections. And also, you know, the very last verse says, Daniel, go your way, and you, at the end of the age you'll arise. And so, you know, Daniel got in on that one, and yet there's another one somewhere up. Then we need some Scripture to talk about this other one. See, that's the problem. Right. I know that's what I mean they they, they just got all things mid yes the age ended but that didn't happen so you know and again I, it's so easy to get you know our presuppositions too often carry us along and we all have them and we all got to be careful of that you know because you know we we think a certain thing and we're just going to stick with that and you know pray to god we don't get that way we just whatever it is it is you know john oh yes i i mean i clearly believe the holy spirit will he said Jesus said in John sixteen that He may abide with you forever, and I don't. I don't know any reason, you know, in the sense that you know the Spirit was always here, you know, and then this, you know, the Spirit hovered over the, you know, when creation took place, the Spirit was involved in there. The Spirit came in a in a certain way during that time to minister, you know, to those transition saints. But we have the Trinity. It's not like you know we can divide them up. You over there, and you're the all of God is everywhere. Okay. So you got the whole package deal, they're all together, and we have the Spirit. You know, the Spirit works within us, He guides us, He teaches us, He leads us. You know, yes, I, I don't see any reason, you know, after 87, to say, the Spirit, you know, you go, go somewhere else, we don't need you anymore. No, we, you know, we definitely need the Spirit. Now, as again, I've said in the last couple of messages that the works of the Spirit, you know, are not through the spiritual gifts like they were in that transition period, but, you know, Lord knows we still, we still need the Spirit, Absolutely. And just like the many of those saints, those old covenant saints, they had the spirit. You know, there wasn't any, you know, that's why David prayed, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. You know, and I, and I hear people pray that today, and I'm like, you don't have to pray that today. You know, that's, a, that's an old covenant prayer, okay? God's already promised he would never do that. He's not going to take his spirit from us, so we don't need to be praying that prayer. Anybody else? I think this Daniel 12 is a really, uh, important text for, uh, for understanding this stuff. Uh, Bill Gann from Las Vegas. Who's that? Bill, you're supposed to be sitting here asking questions, okay? Since we must tie the resurrection with the end of the age, it begs the question, what does the resurrection look like? What happened to the Old Covenant believers and non-believers, the first century saints who were left alive at the return of Christ, and what does it look like for us today? (laughs) <laughs> all right, Bill. Um, what does the resurrection look like? Um, well, I, I think I said last week that, you know, the fact that it happened then, and because of Hymenaeus and Philetus, it, it must have been spiritual. And what I believe the resurrection was, all right, when people died in the Old Covenant, they all went to Sheol, okay, saved, unsaved, I believe. Sheol was a place of unconscious awaiting period, alright? I don't think Luke 16 has anything to do with the afterlife, and hopefully someday we'll get into that parable, but I don't think Sheol was divided into good and bad people. They just all were there asleep, alright? And the resurrection was when the Lord Jesus Christ entered heaven, okay, when the sacrifice was completed at the, at AD 70, alright, when you know those things that Daniel talked about would be fulfilled, <clears throat> He took the saints from Sheol and took them into the presence of God. That was the resurrection. Alright? Now, for us today, is there a resurrection? Well, not in that sense. What I understand our resurrection is individual, it's personal. When you come to faith in Christ, that's because a resurrection has happened. God took you from death and gave you life. Alright? Ephesians 2 1. You were dead in trespasses, since he made alive. That's a resurrection. We're alive. We don't need any other resurrection. Now, I know everybody's big on, the, you know, the body's going to get resurrected. I don't need it, okay? I'm going to a realm, a dimension that is far beyond the capabilities of me to understand. And let me tell you something, people. The Bible says very, very little about heaven. Why? I don't think we can grasp it, okay? I don't think we can, you know, I don't think we can get a handle on it. It's the, it's the realm of God but someday, we're going to move into that realm, and I don't think we're going to have a body per se. Now, I know that some preachers believe in we'll get a spiritual body. That to me, I, don't, I can't even understand that. If it's a body, it's physical, and spiritual is not a body, you know, unless you're talking about the corporate body of Christ, you know, so there's different views on that, and, you know, and so you have to study it out for yourself and find out. Um, what happened, Bill says, uh, let me see if I get all this question, what happened to the old covenant believers, that's what happened to the old covenant believers, and non-believers, what happened to the non-believers, I believe the non-believers were judged at that time, alright, judged and then thrown in the lake of fire, alright, what happened to them when they hit the lake of fire, I think they were just burnt up, I think that's the picture, okay, alright, you go in there, you throw something in the fire, what happens, it just, it's gone, okay, uh the torment goes on forever and ever people say well, yeah it does in the sense that it's over it's a permanent everlasting judgment all right that's what happened to the wicked the first century saints who were left alive at the return of Christ what does it look like for us uh, for the first century for the first century saints what happened then they were given immortality all right now remember you know yeshua talked about the fact that at the end of the age comes eternal life Alright, they didn't have eternal life prior to that. They were looking forward to it. Now they had it. They were given immortality, 1 Corinthians 15 says. Now, and that's why, see, I don't think unbelievers, they're not given immortality. They're mortal. Alright, you know, the the idea that the soul is immortal is a Greek idea, not a Hebrew one. Alright, so I, I think that those believers who were alive at the time of, you know, the second coming, they received immortality. Now they have it, it's complete. What happens to us today, same when we you know, when the Lord regenerates us, gives us new life, we are brought from death to life. It is a resurrection. See, because the resurrection means to stand up and basically means to stand up in the presence of the Lord. That's what resurrection is. You're now in your presence of God. Are we in the presence of God? Absolutely. We are. As soon as He takes us from death to life, we're in His presence. So we have a resurrection. Will we ever die? Spiritually, no. See, death is separation from God. That's not never happened to us. So in that sense, we are resurrected, and we will always be with the Lord. You know, there's a lot of, I know, a lot of talk and a lot of different controversies about what happens after death, and what, you know, and I'll tell you after I die, come and ask me, okay? <laughs> because until then, there's a lot of questions that I have, but I know, you know, throughout eternity, I'll be with my Lord. Now, that's just good enough for me, okay? That's good enough. I'm with Him now, and I will be with Him for eternity. That's good enough for me. Yes? well in immortal by immortality i'm talking about spiritually immortality spiritual life is immortal okay no man will never i don't think man was ever created to live forever. I think it was when God created man, he created him to die okay I just think that's part of our makeup immortality they are spiritual immortality they are now have eternal life that's what I mean by immortality they've been given eternal life, they are in the presence of God and will never die. all right, Shelley from Myrtle Beach asks. The strong angel in Revelation 10, who stands with one foot on the earth and the other on the sea, roars as a lion and directs John not to record the voices of the seven thunders. He raises his hand and swears by God that time should be no more. What does that mean? Um, The way I understand that uh, in Revelation 10, and I think if I can remember correctly, and and maybe I can't, but I think the idea there in verse 6, and delay shall be no more. Is is the way the text reads, okay? And you you've seen that too, you, All right, so I'm just going on my memory here, Shelley. So you don't don't take it to the bank, won't get you anything. But I think if you if you look that up, it's the idea that delay shall be no. There's no more delay. Not that there's not time. And again, see that's the deal with translations. And and if you're going to do some, you know, hopefully in your reading, have have Young's Literal by you, and have the complete Jewish Bible. If you got Young's Literal and the Complete Jewish Bible and then whatever Bible, and you, you go back and forth, you'll get a pretty, pretty good idea on what a text really says, just with those three, all right? As long as one of them's not the NIV. <laughs> Anybody else, Garrett? Okay.